Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Ask Me <laughs> Ask Me Podcast. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the Ask Christopher West Podcast, but that's who I am. <laughs> So it's the Ask Me Podcast. It's the Ask Me Podcast, hosted by my beloved wife, Wendy. Hi, Wendy. So you can say it's it's the Ask Me Podcast, and I can say hosted by me. Okay, it's the Ask Me Podcast. Hosted by me. There it is. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Yes. So uh, it is summertime here, yay, and... Um, I am having a memory of something funny that happened one summer several years ago. There have been other times in our podcast when it has come up that I am a slow person. Things take me a long time to accomplish. Just don't have a lot of energy, all those things. I remember specifically we were talking about us writing a book together and you joked it would take 20 years for me to do my contribution. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just known. But um, there was this one summer where I had really wanted to send out Christmas cards the previous Christmas. In fact, I had the Christmas cards printed and I had never sent them. And I just couldn't waste those Christmas cards. I mean, they were photos of our family, you know, that were all printed on cards. And so I, in the summer, sat down and wrote the addresses and little notes to people and sent them out in July. And one of them I sent to our friend Rose Sweet, who's a Catholic author in, in ministry. And part of her ministry is that she incorporates understanding the four temperaments, the classical four temperaments right. into her ministry. And she's doesn't talk about it all the time, but I know she's aware of it. You know, when she's interacting with you and with me, we're so different. And I think it amuses her to see how our temperaments <laughs> interact. So what, what did she say when she got your Christmas well, card in well, July? This was so funny because I actually said in my little note in the card, I said, Rose, what does it say about me that I'm sending you this Christmas card in July? And she replied, phlegmatic unto death. <laughs> <laughs> Did you share with that with me at the time? Because I don't remember, you don't remember this. Remember that? No. Oh, uh, it was so funny and just loving teasing. I I appreciated her so much. So I barely remember. Um, now that you say it, I kind of remember that we had a year that Christmas cards went out in July, but and yeah, it was kind of a joke. But I, when ago. was this? Like I don't know. A long time. That's ago. pretty funny. So yeah. if you didn't listen to the last episode, Rose Sweet is a sponsor of ours, and we are really happy to promote the work that she does to you, our listeners. If you are looking for a speaker at a conference, if you are looking for a personal retreat, you can go to Palm Springs, sunny California, to spend some time with Rose Sweet. She's a retreat leader. She does one-on-one -on -one retreats. She's a personal life coach. If you're looking to apply the principles of theology of the body in your life, and need specific help doing that, Rose Sweet is the go-to person, in our opinion, as a life coach. She's she's great. We've known her for years. I, I consider her kind of my long-lost older sister. She's been through a lot in her life, and she's a, a woman of deep faith and deep wisdom. So yeah, check out her as a resource, rosesweet.com. We have her link in the show notes as well. Why don't we go to our first question. 
Yes, our first question is from a patron named Noah. Noah asks, if a married couple is able to have children of their own, is it morally wrong to choose to adopt instead? Interesting question. Let me see if I can approach that question from a different angle that will help me just to kind of get my my own mind around it. I would phrase that question this way. Would abstaining from intercourse during the fertile time be justified? In other words, would you have a just reason to avoid getting pregnant if you already had adopted children? And I think the answer to that question could be, in some circumstances, yes. So that's, that's how I would approach that question. It, it, do you see why I'm taking it from that angle? Sure. Because that, I think, am I right that that's really what is at stake? Because it would be wrong, let's just say this very clearly, it would be wrong to, it's always wrong to sterilize your acts of intercourse. Um, nothing can justify using contraception. So you can't say, well, well we're going to adopt children, so I'm going to get a vasectomy. Or we're going to adopt children, so my wife going, is going to go on the pill. No, going on the adopting children is a beautiful thing, but that does not justify sterilizing yourself. That's why I'm addressing it from that angle. So the the church says does not say that we are absolutely obligated to have children. There may be good reason not to bring children into the world. Could it be a good reason if you already have other adopted children not to bring a child into the world? I think it could be, but I'm still not sure that's exactly the question because. Maybe we could look at it from this angle. Could a couple at the start of their marriage say, we are not going to bring children into the world because we want to adopt? Do you think that's... I think that could be the question, yeah. I would consider that unusual and out of the ordinary. That would be an extraordinary situation. But I, I, I don't see any reason objectively that it would be wrong to abstain from intercourse during the fertile time with the intention to adopt. I, I, I could be persuaded otherwise if someone had a, a powerful argument, but at, at, at this point, I don't see why that would be objectively unacceptable. What one, do you th- one of the questions that's asked at a wedding is whether you will accept children lovingly from God and raise them in the church. Right. Um, so obviously when we adopt a child, we're accepting that child lovingly from God. Right. Um, so that is in fact a beautiful thing to do. But I think what you're getting at is that the very thought that um, the only way we would bring children into the world is through adoption or not bring them into the world, but right. raise them, have them yes, receive them yes. is, is through adoption would have to be an unusual circumstance. That doesn't mean that doesn't exist. You know, sometimes uh, a couple might be in a situation where a family member has died and you have nieces and nephews. Who sure. Are orphaned, well, that's a great example. You know, sure. So you suddenly have this family and that is demanding a lot of you. And so as a result, you're not bringing additional children into the world but yeah it is it's sort of a complicated thing to try to understand you know what would be the circumstance where that would be what a couple would choose i have heard 
lots and lots and lots of questions over the years. And that is one that I don't recall anyone has ever posed to me before. Mm. So that's pretty good job, Noah. Yeah, with the good new job, question. Noah, with the new question. <laughs> <laughs> Our next question is from an anonymous listener. Years ago, I attended a Theology of the Body conference and have recently discovered your podcast and love listening to you both. Oh, that's happy to hear. During your May 3rd podcast, in response to a sensitive question, you responded in part that the man's seed only belongs in the garden. This is where my sensitive question comes from. What if the woman no longer has her garden? Would it be an impediment to marriage if the wife no longer has her garden where her husband can plant his seed? So if I were to draw this out, it sounds like he's speaking of a woman who's had a hysterectomy. Is, yeah, is that so. what you're mm-hmm. gathering? Yes. So, so garden is the way I sensitively put the term. Uh, I, I guess we, we, we need to maybe be more clear here mm. and say that the deposit of the husband's seed always belongs in his wife's vagina. Mm-hmm. That's specifically what we're saying. I see what he meant by connecting the garden with the womb. Um, if a woman has had a hysterectomy, she's clearly not able to have children. But the inability to have children is not an impediment to marriage unless it demonstrates a closed will to children. Say a woman had cancer in her 20s and had to have a hysterectomy. And in her late 20s, she falls in love and wants to get married. It's clear that she's not going to be able to bring children into the world. That is not necessarily an intention against children. It's a sad fact and reality of a medically necessary procedure to remove cancer from her body, then an, that an unintended side effect of that surgery is that she re, is now sterile. There is nothing in her will that has closed itself to life. So that would not be an impediment to marriage, so long as she can still engage in sexual intercourse. We're assuming the rest of her anatomy is intact and that intercourse could actually happen. But the church does teach that if you are definitively and perpetually unable to engage in the sexual act, that is genital intercourse, which, let's be specific, is the intercourse of the genitals, the male genitals and the female genitals, Mm -hmm. because two male genitals cannot have intercourse. Mm -hmm. Two female genitals cannot have intercourse. And this is why two men can't get married. This is why two women can't get married, because they can't engage in sexual intercourse, genital intercourse. It is a requirement to be able to be married that you have the capacity to engage in genital intercourse. It is not a requirement that you have the ability to conceive. Mm -hmm. So that is a very important distinction in canon law, and I, I hope that answers this man's question. Do you think I've answered his question? I do. And I think, you know, it is a sensitive question. And I think, especially for people who know that they are sterile from their, you know, their medical history, it can be a very painful thought that 
is it the church teaching that I can't get married? You know, and so I, I think it can almost be like an overwhelming experience of like being excluded or um, rejected or something that's already painful being made even more painful. Right, right. Um, so I think there are probably many people relieved to hear the answer to that question and also just the clarity of it that, you know, we've just, we've lost track in our culture of the meaning, what is said in marital union. And so, you know, we have so many people using that action outside of marriage. We don't even understand what it is saying right, in right, marriage, right. that it is the bond of the two, that it is their vow of perpetual unity expressed in their bodies. We don't have that in our culture. And so it can just cause us to not have the foundation to even understand why would the church say anything about this at all? Right, right. You know, because it is put by God into us as the expression of a marriage. It's actually extremely illuminating when you allow this truth to sink in that genital intercourse is the defining reality of marriage. It's what makes marriage this kind of relationship versus that kind of relationship. Uh, there are many kinds of human relationships. There are many kinds of human love. But what is distinct about marital love? What is distinct about marital love is that the two become one flesh. The two engage in genital intercourse, a joining of their lives that is so intimate that they become the two bodies become one body. And if we want to get even a little more technical here, the two organisms become one organism. And, and here's another way to say it. Men and women are literally organized for one another by God, mm. which means they have the organs that allow them to become one functioning organism, mm. right? Two men are not organized for one another. Two women are not organized for one another. Uh, a man and a woman, so long as they have the organs that allow them to be organized for one another, thus having the capacity to engage in that union that makes them one body, they're able to be married. Look at a couple past childbearing years. They know that they're not going to be able to conceive but they're still able to get married because they're still male and female and they still have the capacity to become one flesh. Mm -hmm. Just let that truth sink in and it will, it will illuminate for you very beautifully what marriage is and will also shine a bright light on the vastness of the confusion in the modern world about marriage and gender. What is gender? Gender, put it this way, is the ability to engage in genital intercourse. That's what gender affords. Gender is that call to that union uh, of the two becoming one flesh. A world confused about the meaning of gender is inevitably going to be confused about the meaning of marriage. And conversely, a world confused about the meaning of marriage is inevitably going to be confused about the meaning of gender. Uh, I think we should leave it at that for the sake of of the time on the podcast, but I would encourage listeners out there to take a look at my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. It has almost 150 of these hot button questions that the world is so confused about. 
and in, entire chapters on uh, the gender question and another chapter on what makes marriage valid or invalid that I think will shine a bright light on, on these issues. I agree. I actually do have one more comment for this listener, for this oh, question, please, yeah, please. which is that as we're illuminating this, there's so much richness and the, that, that the marital union is expressing marriage has a further implication that it expresses being a gift for the other being called to serve the other, to put the other first in our hearts. And there can come a time in a marriage when it is no longer possible for the couple to engage. Sure, in sure. Union. They don't stop being married. Correct, They correct. continue to fulfill that gift of self to one another throughout all stages of yes, marriage. Yes, absolutely. Here's what the church is saying. If we take this in again, it will it'll be a bright light illuminating the power and potency of sexual union, which we think of as just as something as casual as a handshake in our culture today. But let's take the example, uh, since you brought it up, um, of a couple who can't have intercourse. Let's say, in fact, let's make it more extreme. Let's say it's the day after the wedding. They came together. They became one flesh the night before on their wedding night. They have consummated their union. That one act of intercourse is so potent and so powerful that their lives, until death they part, are now bound together by a sacramental bond. Let's say the day after they get married, they've consummated their union, they're in a car accident, and now they are physically incapacitated to have sexual intercourse. Let's say it's, it's the wife. Uh, who's incapacitated. And now the husband, for the next 50 years, shows his fidelity to the meaning and power of their wedding night when they became one flesh, by now feeding his paralyzed wife, by now changing her soiled diapers for 50 years. That, they've had intercourse one time, that marriage is living out the full truth of what marital union is. That's what we're saying. Every time a husband and wife become one flesh, that's what they're meant to be saying. They're meant to be renewing and expressing their wedding vows. I love you freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully, good times, bad, sickness, health, for richer, for poorer all the days of our lives. That's the meaning and power of sexual intercourse. Could there be a higher value placed on sexual intercourse than that? Hmm. No. No. That's what every human being is worth. Our next question is actually also related to the topic of marital chastity, and I think that's great because we can sort of draw on some of what we've already okay. said in speaking to this question from Jacqueline. Hello, Jacqueline. Jacqueline says, I'm considering Catholicism from a Lutheran background, but there's an issue I have not been able to come to terms with as a young married mother of three children who are three and under. Why is natural family planning allowed and not contraceptive birth control that's not, does not abort? What is the difference other than a technicality? 
Both are being used to prevent life at that time. Both are somewhat effective. It would be easier for me to swallow that there should be no family planning than NFP is fine, but birth control is not. Also, why in TOB do I keep hearing that sex is never separated from procreation? By nature, much of a woman's cycle makes her not capable of procreating. Should we then only have sex during the fertile time? Help. Bless you, Jacqueline. You're, you're pressing right into all of the questions, all of the issues, and I just want to invite you to continue pressing in. There are clear, beautiful, compelling answers to all of these questions. And in just the few minutes we have here on the podcast, we can't get into all of that vision. But I, I would invite you again, check out this book. You will not regret it. If you don't have the money for it, I'm not trying to like pad my wallet here by promoting this book. If you don't have the money for it, send our staff an email and we'll just send it to you for free. Uh, we'll we'll find donors to cover the costs. The, the, the goal is not to just promote my book so that we can pad our, our wallets. The goal is to get this information out there. Please, though, please do read Good News About Sex and Marriage. I answer all of those questions in great detail. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's begin with uh, the question she had about, is it only about procreation? Uh, mm -hmm. What did she say? T.O.B., the talk yes. I hear is... Yes, that sex is never separated from procreation. Okay, well, I don't know where exactly she's hearing that. I would never say it that way. Um, there's some impression she's gaining that m maybe comes from uh, hearing things a certain way or assuming a few things, but uh, this is what the church teaches. We of our own will may not break the connection that God has established between sexual intercourse and procreation. This is God's design. This is His domain. He is the author of the sexual act. He is the one who connected this, this act, genital intercourse, with the power to generate. He is the Lord and the giver of life, and what the church teaches is not that you even must intend to conceive when you have intercourse, but rather that you must not do anything if you choose to engage your genitals, if you choose to engage in the act that God designed for the generation of life, you may not do something else to render that act sterile. Mm -hmm. However, you are not obligated to engage in the act of genital intercourse. There are often times in married life when a couple has a good reason not to bring another life into the world. What could they possibly do, if they have a good reason not to bring another life into the world, what could they do that would not violate in any way the meaning of genital intercourse? And I bet you a million bucks everybody listening to this podcast is doing it right now. What could they do, Wendy? Well, they could not be having intercourse. That's right. And that's why I bet a million dollars that everybody listening to this right now is doing it. What are they doing? They're abstaining from sexual intercourse. We are not obligated to engage in sexual intercourse. But we are obligated, if we choose to engage in sexual intercourse, to engage in it the way God created it, allowing the presence of the Lord and giver of life. Let, let's look at it from another angle. I remember years ago, you'll remember this, Wendy, It was we were newly married, and we were giving a talk on this. 
at your home parish where we were married. And someone in the audience was making this connection that, that intercourse is a participation in the divine life and that the Holy Spirit is the love shared between the Father and the Son. And there's kind of an analogy in the marital embrace with the child and the Holy Spirit. And she raised her hand and she said, I, I've never heard this before. This is amazing. I, I've never thought of it, that the Holy Spirit is actually part of our union. She said, but what, I, what if I want to have sex with my husband and we don't want the Holy Spirit there? <laughs> and you'll remember how shocked I was by, not shocked was not the, the way, but it was, it, was a, it was an illumination. It was an epiphany. And I said, that's exactly what's wrong with contraception because that's exactly what you're saying. We don't want the Holy Spirit to be part of this act. You're engaging in the act that calls upon the Holy Spirit. When you activate your genitals and genital intercourse, the language of that activation is, is let the Holy Spirit come. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Here's, here's uh, some language that I, I've gained recently from Eastern theology. The Eastern Church talks about energy and synergy in the Christian life. That at the Annunciation, when Mary conceived Jesus, the energy of God, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, the Eastern theology calls that the divine energy. The divine energy was working with Mary's human energy, and when divine energy and human energy come together, you have synergy, mm. right? So contracepted intercourse is the activation of our human energy, but it's a denial of synergy with the divine. We are saying, I don't want God to be part of this. I don't want the Lord and giver of life to work through our genital energy to generate new life. That is a denial. That is a no. You are inserting a no into what should be a yes. You are, you are morphing the I do of the marriage commitment into an I do not. Right at the moment of truth, when you are meant to be expressing with the language of your body, this is my body given up for you freely, totally, faithfully, and if it is God's will, let there be life. That I do is now an I do not. John Paul II says our bodies are prophetic. They are meant to proclaim the truth that God is life-giving love. But when we, of our own will, render the act sterile, we become false prophets. Okay, so what about the couple who knows when they're fertile and when they're not fertile, and during the fertile time they abstain, but during the infertile time they come together again? People will say, oh, come on. What is the big difference between <laughs> sterilizing the act yourself and just waiting till it's naturally infertile? The end result is the very same thing. Both ch people avoid children, or both couples avoid children, to which I respond, oh, come on. What is the big difference between killing grandma and just waiting till she dies naturally? The end result is the same thing. Right. Okay. Yep. True enough. End result is the same thing, but one is a serious sin called murder, mm -hmm. and in the other, grandma's dead, 
but there's no sin involved whatsoever because her death is an act of God. Mm-hmm. Jacqueline, I, I invite you to consider this. If you can understand the difference between euthanasia and natural death, you can understand the difference between contraception and natural family planning. The difference is the same. In one, God remains God. Natural death, natural infertility. As you yourself pointed out, Jacqueline, because of the way God made a woman's body, she's not always fertile. That's God's doing. That is God's doing. So when we engage in intercourse during the naturally infertile time, that's God's doing that a child doesn't result. When grandma dies naturally, that's God's doing. But when we kill grandma or when we render our genitals unable to generate, we are taking the powers of life into our own hands and we are making ourselves like God. And that was the original sin. Jacqueline, press in, my dear sister. Keep going. If you find the truth challenging, my challenge to you is to let it challenge you. Ask all your questions. The truth is not afraid of our questions. The question is, are we afraid of the truth? We needn't be. The truth will set us free. Keep going, dear sister. You're on the journey. Keep going. You are on the verge of a real breakthrough and a real liberation. Wendy, I have something to say to Jacqueline. Please. Jacqueline, you go, girl, because when I... If I had ever had three children, three and under, (laughs) my brain function was so low (laughs) to imagine like just even you're thinking on these topics and honestly asking and seeking. I am so impressed with you. And I just want to affirm you from that perspective of motherhood, which is a joy. Your children, I'm sure bring you a lot of affection and humor, but also you're probably pretty tired. And that's part of the whole story. But I just wanted to take a moment to thank you both for, you know, looking into these things and for taking time to listen to a podcast and for your open heart and your seeking mind all in the midst of a very beautiful but challenging time of life. So way to go, Jacqueline. Yeah, here, here, Jacqueline. Way to go. I, I, I know these issues are weighing heavily on you right at this moment, precisely because you have three children under the age of three. And as Wendy was saying, uh, yeah, that, yes, we understand the burden. But I invite, I invite you nonetheless, or even more so, I invite you to press in. If marital intercourse is really what Scripture proclaims it to be, and what does Scripture proclaim it to be? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. If sexual intercourse really and truly is a great mystery that is meant to reveal, proclaim, and enable us to participate in the mystery of Christ's life-giving love for his church, 
it would become, if it really is that, and we really let that come into our hearts and, and inform us and transform us, the idea of rendering sexual intercourse sterile becomes unthinkable. We, we come to see that it turns the husband not into another Christ, but into a, an antichrist to render that act sterile. He's no longer imaging Christ, he's imaging something else. And it turns the wife not into an image of the church, the bride of Christ, the fertile bride, but it turns her into a kind of anti-church. It makes us not true prophets, it makes us false prophets. It turns the sacrament into a sacrilege. I remember reading years ago in a book, uh, Sex and Sacredness, uh, it went, the, the author said something like this, unless you go in for the black mass, there is only one sin that tempts us regularly that in the end is the blaspheming of a sacrament. Mm. And that's sexual sin. And contraception is precisely that. I, I want to close here by reading a section from my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, where I, I use a couple other analogies here. And just because I can tell this is a pressing question for you, Jacqueline, I, I want to be as thorough as, as time allows here. So I say here, if you're open to seeing the difference, I think the following analogy will help. Suppose there were a religious person, a non-religious person, and an anti-religious person walking past a church. What might each do? Let's say the religious person goes inside and prays. The non-religious person walks by and does nothing, and the anti-religious person goes inside the church and desecrates it. I'm framing an analogy here, of course, but these are reasonable behaviors to expect. Which of these three persons did something that is always, under every circumstance, wrong? Here's the analogy. Husbands and wives are called to be procreative. If they have good reason to avoid pregnancy, they are free to be non-procreative. But it is a contradiction of the deepest essence of the sacrament of marriage to be anti-procreative. The analogy is even more profound than we may think. According to Ephesians 5, as I was saying, the wife is a sacramental sign of the church. As exemplified in the Virgin Mary, a woman's womb has truly become the temple of God. If the husband enters this church, he must pray for God's will to be done. He may have a good reason not to enter the church, but it would be a grievous sacrilege to enter the church and desecrate it by sterilizing her womb. So food for thought, not just for Jacqueline, but for everybody out there. And let me just close with this. God's mercy is real. Amen. If you have not known what we're explaining to you now, if the light is coming on and you're looking back at a lifetime of not understanding this and acting in a contrary way, do not beat yourself up. The enemy, that is the clear sign of the enemy. The enemy loves to tempt us into the sin, and then once we're convicted that it was a sin, he loves to have us beat ourselves up. Trust in God's mercy. Don't ever look at your sin without holding the hands of mercy. Mercy, Latin, misericordia. What does it mean? 
It means God is out to get you and you're going to hell. That's what it means. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. Listen, listen, listen to this good news. Misericordia, a heart, core, dia, a heart that gives itself to those in misery. This is the good news. He comes to us in our pain, in our misery, and he saves us from it. Thank you, God. Thank you, you, God. Lord, we lift up Jacqueline to you right now. We lift up her marriage. We lift up her three children that you have given to her. We lift up the trials, the joys, the burdens, the struggles, the sleepless nights, the screaming, the diaper changes, all that family life is, which is not always easy. But if we let it, it molds us, it carves us, it shapes us into men and women who know what it means to love as Christ loves. May we all be open to that molding and shaping in our lives, that we would be made capable of entering heaven, which is the eternal participation in the life-giving love of the Trinity. Lord, this is your plan for us. This is your will for us. This is how you have made us. This is what we long for. Thank you, Lord, for making us as the indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable human beings you have made us to be. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.